the word worker is important to us. Because once we begin to think of yourself not as the professional that is uh, providing this other service that is above and beyond what other people do within the, the life cycle of a construction and building project, it, it begins to put us in conversation with that. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with architects Killian Riano and Peggy Deemer. Killian and Peggy join us today to discuss their advocacy for architecture as a form of labor and their various roles in the architecture lobby. Killian, Peggy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. It's lovely to see you both um, and from uh, various parts of the world, New Zealand and New York. Kilian, uh, you've served both on the executive committee and the board of the architecture lobby. So let's just begin at the beginning. So what, what is the architecture lobby? Uh, the architecture lobby is an organization that uh, advocates on behalf of the architect. Uh, there are other organizations out there that more broadly uh, look at architecture as a field. The architecture lobby really looked uh, at, the, at the individual, their needs, and to create solidarities around those needs uh, understanding architecture as work and and architecture as a worker, uh, p- providing possibilities for different outcomes of advocacy. And uh, how many members, uh, if that's the right uh, term of art, does the architecture lobby enjoy today? Uh, I, I think we're around um, 380. And these are in various chapters uh, across the country? Yep. And it includes students as well as professionals. So. For our guests who aren't familiar with the Architecture Lobby, you can visit uh, architecture-lobby.org, all lowercase, at which point you'll discover a description. Um, the Architecture Lobby is an international organization of architectural workers, planners, and designers advocating for the value of architecture in the general public and for architectural work within the discipline. The Lobby believes that power in society should be democratic and widely distributed and that changes to a humanitarian built environment must be cited in organizing labor. It believes that the work architects do and the capitalist society in which we work need structural change to properly serve spatial justice. As long as architecture tolerates abusive practices in the office and the construction site, it cannot insist on its role in fighting for public safety, environmental health, or an equitable society. So that's a a broad, ambitious uh, set of goals. could you help us kind of walk through that set of um, kind of va- values, let's say? So on the one hand, it begins with this notion of organizing individuals. Um, we are, as members of a profession, on the one hand, often parts of professional associations. Uh, think of the AIA or the ASLA or the APA, for example. Uh, we're also often licensed by the state, so we have a relationship uh, through the state. Um, why did you feel that it was necessary to found a, a, a new entity that represented um, individual citizen designers? I think the first realization was that nobody was advocating for um, employees or um, architectural workers in general. Um, and it was amazing to think that the AIA didn't even use the word employee in its um writings, everyone is an emerging practitioner. Uh, so 
so there, there was a meeting with National AIA asking them about why they didn't talk about um, bad labor practices, bad wages, um, and they basically said that antitrust laws prevented them from talking about um, both fees and wages. Um, so that was a kind of bureaucratic way of linking our worries about architectural workers to larger institutional issues. And if I may add, I think it's also important that as you begin to do that, you begin to notice some of the larger trends that are happening, uh, such as uh, <clears throat> healthcare is not always easy to get, especially if you are in a gig economy, if you're an architect that's picking up for little projects here or there, uh, such as that, you know, the rents in most uh, major cities in the U.S. have gone up tremendously and it, it's getting harder and it's influencing uh, actually the kind of work you take and the kind of practice you have. So that by identifying ourselves as workers, as, as Peggy was saying, it begins to tie us to much larger systematic issues. So both it forces us to think what how the or how our disciplines are involved in these larger systems, but also how uh, we can come together with people outside of those disciplines to talk about those larger issues. I mean, just just to build on that, um, the 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 first realization that that we came to. Uh, for me anyway, was at Who Builds Your Architecture Symposium. And that was trying to get architects to talk about the fact that uh, projects that were being built in the Emirates were, were using um, indentured <laughs> workers and um, inhumane conditions. And the light went off for me that we don't care about that as architects because we don't identify with workers. We think of those workers as a different category. And so just to reiterate what Kilney is saying, a lot, a lot of the work that the lobby is doing and the connections that we're trying to make have to do with seeing it within a larger network, which includes, you know, con construction, um, you know, and, and also academia and, you know, many other things, environmentalism, we can go on and on. We're only a few months removed from the 2022 World Cup uh, in Qatar, which, of course, brought to um, kind of broader, more mainstream, you know, media outlets concerns around the relationship between architecture as you know high design and a kind of global, you know, marketplace for let's say cultural production through signature, uh, signature uh, destination venues, uh, sports washing as it's now called, and in relationship to migrant laborers, um, in, in this in this conception of the architecture lobby, um, has it been the case from the very beginning that those two forms of labor, that is the the labor of others elsewhere, manifesting works of architecture on behalf of, you know, uh, a, a certain elite uh, and the employees of those very architects, were they always present um, in this conception? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And, and that's one of the, the important reasons why the, the work, uh, the word worker is important to us. Because once we begin to think of yourself not as the professional that is uh, providing this other service that is above and beyond what other people do within the, the life cycle of a construction and building project, it begins to put us in conversation with that. Understanding that we have different levels of education, you know, our privilege is different, but uh, we can begin to create those moments of solidarity by considering ourselves as workers. In addition to the description that I read, um, you can also find a, a, a 12, 12 point manifesto, um, which begins with a declarative sentence, we are precarious workers. 
So I want to focus on that question of precarity and um, in, in, in which ways are, you know, the designing classes precarious? Well, I think we can think about it um, both at the level of an employee and the level of an employer. Um, we all know that as an employee, you have virtually no control over your schedule. Um, you know, it, you're you're lucky to be asked in on a Sunday at 10 o'clock um, because, yay, they need us. Um, so there's that kind of precarity and lack of control for the employee, but even for the employer, we basically function in a gig economy, um, begging for work, competing against each other for for projects, lowering our fees so that we get things. It's um, there's no there's no larger um, system of stability within which uh, we are paid or or pay others. For me, it has always been helpful uh, uh, to think about. The, the 2005 essay, Communic Communicative Capitalism by Jody Dean, in which he begins to describe that what we are seeing uh, in the tech economy, uh, things like, Uber, like that was started with social media, Twitter, Facebook, her question is we're working for them, yet we don't get paid. That moved into Uber and other systems, but uh, and that that is uh, that model of uh, almost uh, platforms that own the, the the resources and then people that are at the bottom are beginning to produce uh, to to do the actual work to get the item the McDonald's to the person or whatever it is uh, that 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 was going to begin to become more and more part of a, a, a an economic model. Uh, one of her predictions was that this was probably going to hit some of the creative fields and etc. So I really think that part of that also comes with with the specific moment that we're living. This economic shift that we're seeing uh, that uh, some many architects may come out fine or not fine work. A lot of people, uh, both for the experience and also to maybe start their own work, et cetera, are choosing to to move to this gig uh, model and and. But yet there is not uh, that comes with a lot of precarity and uh, and that you know many of the infrastructures that architectural uh, the architectural field uses to you know its cultural to have its cultural cachet use that uh, precarity and and run on that precarity everything from the the pavilion design that uh, with very little money to uh, and our, our, so we are saying that and not to say those things are not important but those are the things that bring precarity to our field. This conversation is reminding me of um, something that uh, my friend uh, Bridget Shim, the, the Toronto architect, said to me, that by virtue of being in the Canadian system and having, therefore, zero student debt and, uh, you know, uh, nationalized health insurance, uh, she and many of her colleagues were able to both start their practice, but also engage in forms of work that they found, you know, socially uh, productive or valuable in a way that they might not otherwise have been uh, in the U.S. context. That's so true. I'm going to share with you that one of the reasons was why I was able to start the, the kind of practice that I've had was because I'm a veteran and I have VA benefits. So I never I never had to question where I could get health care. Uh, and, and that allowed me a certain amount of freedom, that, although I did have and I do have the student debt. It, it did allow me I, I, I was very conscious that I had uh, options that many of my peers didn't just because of that one thing. Two of the dozen bullet point manifesto items uh, that I think are quite central to um, the, the, the mission of the lobby. Uh, first, to build worker power and collective agency through unionization. Um, and then second, to um, abandon the practice of free labor and unpaid internships. Um, are, are those two 
fundamental aspects of the program here? I think I think they're fundamental in in the sense that we need to uh, stop thinking of architecture as a calling and think of it as a career. Um, and so it's a it's a mind shift um, that uh, moves us away from um, one competition against each other. You know, we're all on our own, whether that's the individual or the firms against each other, to to supporting each other. Um, but but also with that, changing a sense that we're begging for work. You know, whether we're begging our clients or whether we're begging our employees, um, that we're in a position of of um, expertise and knowledge that hasn't hasn't properly been recognized. And to me, I think part of the question here is uh, value, right? So it's beginning to understand uh, the value of our, once we understand ourselves as workers, the value of our work and where it goes and what we are willing to do and what we're not willing to do. <clears throat> uh, unpaid competitions can be part of that precarity problem. Uh, and they and and one of the things that I think and I think the connection to union is that <clears throat> when you provide free labor, unpaid internships, which are not legal, uh, unpaid overtime or any of these things, you basically uh, one person that does it begins to make cre create the 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 almost excuse for other people to do it or creates the so th that the very act of uh, of saying I won't do this not uh, is not only. Because it's not good for me, but it's also because it's not good for others. You're you're taking a stance that is much bigger, and that I believe is also when uh, when a union can both strengthen uh, that that um, that impulse of 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 valuing your your time uh, and your skills and your thinking and all of that, uh, but also uh, that is not just an individual. I'm not going to do this, but it's uh, I'm not going to do this because it's bad for me and many others, and I'm going to work for those many others to uh, to create uh, potential alternatives, mo uh, models and processes, um, and, and eventually ways of working within the fields. I mean, I myself, of course, have benefited enormously from organized labor and collective bargaining. My family or, you know, a, a union worker family, you know, my entire, you know, kind of career wouldn't have been possible without, you know, inexpensive public education at a state university and uh, and the robust protection of um of a of a union advocating and collectively bargaining. Um, I, I want to um, ask about the the recent um, uh, kind of fits and starts toward unionization. I know that um, you know several shops uh, on the East Coast have been you know at various stages of becoming unionized. Uh, what is the state of play today on that project in the U.S. to the extent you can uh, you know give us a sense of that? I think it's very specific. You know, I I, I think we all know that Andrew Bernheimer is is the first to um actually uh uh accept the unionization effort on the part of its his employees um that was not an antagonistic uh outcome um he was he was open to his employees requests um so i think right now they're um in the um bargaining position um uh and none of us know what the outcome is of that in some way, it's a really fabulous thing, which is to say now it's on the books. Um, the first fight with shop was also a huge, a huge step, which is recognizing that this is something that um, employees are willing to do. And this is not a foreign concept. But this this one um, getting in the books is really um, hugely important. The fact that it wasn't contested by by the by management 
um, maybe makes it um, a specific model that isn't necessarily the one that will um, will work for for other other efforts, but nevertheless, it's it's hugely important. Yeah, and I think that it's also important to contextualize um, <clears throat> the unionization at Andy Bernheimer's office, really, and in architecture generally, is part of a larger what people are terming white collar union movement, right? Uh, journalism is uh, unionizing more and more tech. So to say, and I do think that it's important to put it in that context that is not just architects, but there's a movement of younger uh, people working in highly specialized fields uh, that are beginning to notice that their their labor creates a a lot of uh, benefits for a lot of people. And they're beginning to question both how much time they they put into it. They're very passionate people that want to do a great job. But do they want to? What do they want this to be their life uh, and the end and the beginning of their life? And people are beginning to see that by be, being part of a union, it, it gives you certain guarantees. It, it it makes your life potentially better. So I, I do think that for the one in architecture, it's important to think about it not just within our field, but seeing what, how what is happening across similar fields uh, in the in the broader economy. You both mentioned. Um kind of broader unionization across the so-called professional classes, let's say, you know, Peggy, in your 2020 volume, Architecture and Labor, uh, you suggest that architecture has been slow or relatively behind other creative classes, uh, journalism, the arts, fashion. Um, In what way could we characterize that, like being behind? Like what what, what would be the indicators, you know, looking forward that we were somehow uh, catching up with those other fields? This may not answer your question directly about about the indicators, but but we can maybe talk about the reasons why architecture is behind other other creative fields. And I and I think it's the um, toxic combination of professionalism and 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 art. Um, and uh, somehow, uh, whatever efforts artists have made, um, we don't relate to those because we're professionals. And um, what whatever gains um, other professionals have made, we don't relate to them because we're artists. So so we use the each each of those to be a default um, about why we shouldn't um, identify with all these other movements that have um, that have gotten on the train a long time ago. I, I, the one thing that I'll add to this is that I, I do think that in, in our field, maybe there needed to be a little bit of a couple of generations for this conversation to even be had. And we're beginning to see the fruits. And I think it's important to say that the lobby is mostly made up by a lot of um, uh, people that have come out of school more recently than, than Peggy and I have. Uh, and that uh, and that they really have a path. They're beginning to ask these questions. They're beginning to, to feel now with the conversation open, thanks to the architecture lobby, thanks to Peggy in many ways and, and what she has written. And that now the conversation is different and that people are beginning to see it. So. I think that part of it is that is that uh, as we move forward, uh, the 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 space for practice seems to get a little bit more complicated, especially for smaller and middle mid scale firms. Uh, uh, the question is then what 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 value do we bring? What, who how do we benefit from this uh, from the work and the broader value that we create for people? But I do think that there's something about the the the, the generation that is seeing their peers do it more, the the conversation in the air. Uh, professional practice courses are beginning to talk more about unions. They're talking more about uh, alternative practices. 
And I'll add one last thing, which is I uh, that I, I also think, because you mentioned this earlier, Charles, that uh, I think that also this kind of... Uh, practice difference can potentially lead to different uh, places of practice, models, uh, sites of interest. Uh, and in, in, in a country that we know has become more and more um, polarized, there are places uh, that are hurting, that are many places where we're potentially uh, design uh, ideas, design projects, processes are uh, that, could be used. Uh, and But the very kind of economic models don't always allow uh, some of the 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 the, the practitioners, especially coming out of school, to go and work there. The way that we sometimes see in Europe and like in Spain, so many collectives, cooperatives, all trying to think about some of the issues around housing, around immigration, around some of the things that are that are they're dealing, and they are self-organizing to respond to that. Something that becomes a little bit harder here in the U.S. I want to ask a, a question on the one hand to sort of push a little bit on this premise. So I think in various ways, each of you um, have implied and in some cases been quite explicit that one of the challenges facing architecture has been it's kind of its own self-constructed narrative. It's notion that it's a profession for a certain kind of uh, a certain kind of class of person. It's been built historically that way and that that narrative gets in the way I'm struck. Peggy, by your um, kind of recalling that the AIA imagines us all to be entrepreneurs, like we're we're all kind of you know firm owners in waiting somehow, and that also is is problematic. Um, um, isn't it simply an easier or more elegant explanation to say that you know most architects in practice don't have engagements with the academy? They're not really engaged in production of culture or knowledge, let's say, but most of them are really a part of the professional services economy. Uh, is, isn't that a, a simpler way of thinking about this relationship? Um, and in that regard, aren't there other professional services, uh, you know, kind of firms that are profitable, that, that do have forms of, you know, cooperative or collective organization? This is where I fall back on the work that ideology does, you know, because um, I think that even even though, Charles, as you're saying, that there are many people who aren't aren't part of, don't see themselves as part of the culture industry, they're doing service work, they're going to work, you know, in, in a kind of professional um, industry. Um, I think the majority of us think thought we were going into architecture to do some social good. You know that this whether we thought the social good came because we were going to deliver better better buildings that that make our you know experience of the built environment more joyful or whether we actually thought that we were going to be doing affordable housing and doing things that programmatically were were beneficial um so i i i look at that ideology as something that brings um all of us together whether you know whether you're working for a large firm in the middle of Iowa, or or whether you're, you know, on, on the East Coast, you know, also teaching is along with your small firm. Um, I I think there's a kind of common sense that architecture was going to be more relevant <laughs> than we have actually discovered it to be. Yeah, and, and the only thing I'll add is that uh, although it's right, I don't think it's just a, a, an academic issue. Uh, I think that. Um, Although maybe you can make the argument that some of these uh, practices are picked up in academia, uh, I, I I think that is uh, you know the fact there are signifiers, there are things, there are actual like for example we hold a stamp. The, all of a sudden there's a 
there's a um, a series of of um, uh, often state sponsored uh, reasons why we might think of ourselves as differently. Uh, and and it's true that uh, that it could be that we're just part of this, but that separation, the the, the reality is that it that does not account for uh, in the negotiation table with a client or with uh, a developer or with a construction company. Uh, that that still the uh, that serves to to almost feed a certain ego, a certain like well I I am this kind of worker in this. But it doesn't uh, materially change the, your position, and then that only uh, uh, reverberates into into your employees. Uh, so th the question is that by flipping the question and putting, even if you're the owner of the practice, you are in fact a worker. You're you're doing the work of this. Uh, it, it changes the equation. It changes the way that you see yourself and the way that potentially. And the, and and I and I'll I'll go back to this because it's something we keep uh, kind of hinting at here. It, it might change the way the, the the kind of discussions you have, the kind of uh, projects you take on, and even the the kind of uh, work you end up producing. It does strike me that um, one of the moments in the you know kind of life of a professional services design or architecture firm um, in which uh, conversations of collectivity come up is often around retirement planning. <laughs> I've been struck, you know, in, in both in architecture and landscape architecture, how many how many firms, you know, pivot all of a sudden to talk about collectivity when it's, you know, they're looking for a generation of of their employer employees to um, to inherit the business, as it were. Um, but setting that aside, I guess another another probe and another thing that I want to be able to kind of ventilate a little bit here is the extent to which the architecture lobby, you know, coming from the work of yourselves and your and your your colleagues. To what extent is it essentially a, an academic or a disciplinary critique of the context for um, professionalization? Like it strikes me that so much of the energy, so much of the impetus has come out of schools. Uh, so much of it has come out of you know kind of migrant intellectual laborers in the design fields advocating for changes, uh, structural changes. You know, broad, uh, kind of quite uh, kind of uh, ambitious and quite I think uh, you know kind of uh, you know. Uh, it, it, well-considered uh, structural changes to a profession. And so for me, it brings up the relationship between the academy and its critique of the profession. Is, is that a useful way of thinking about this or or am I wrong about that? It's useful in, in one sense. You know, I, I um, the way that it maybe isn't useful um, is that we don't want to encourage the the standard narrative of academia being the place where you can be visionary and you don't need to understand the complications of the world and which will only kind of limit your imagination and whatever. And then the real world, you know, which is the profession, um, pounds you with all the things that limit your creativity. That's not an, that's not what we want to think about, but, but, in the positive sense about uh, rethinking that relationship, um, it's it's how they feed on each other to keep a limited notion of um, what it is that we're meant to do, you know, and and that has to do with the the discourse of autonomy that 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 is in the academy that you know you're you're not necessarily in the world you're learning the discipline. Um, forget everything about how you grew up and everything you thought about, you know, space and architecture. Let's start from scratch. Let's wipe you out and do it. Um, that in that needs to be challenged by the fact that we're always in the world. <laughs> have you know, 
and that we need to understand in education that the real world offers us um, these amazing problems around which imagination is required. Um, and uh, so the academy needs to stop producing a kind of worker who is willing to be exploited um, and has false beliefs about their, their relevance. But on the other hand, the real world needs to understand, or you know, the practice, you know, I'm using real world as a standard for practice. Practice needs to understand that it cannot itself begin to think about uh, how it engages with the problems of the world in, in the way that the AIA and the profession and the industry is structured. You know, if I may, I think this is a really interesting point because I think that the notion of the real world is a complicated one, especially when thinking through about it from academia. Uh, I, I uh, last semester was ending a lot of uh, lectures and moderations that I was doing by reciting some of the uh, striking Pratt students from 1968, their demands, their 12 demands. And one of them is that uh, the projects didn't have a lot of um, uh, connection to what's happening in the real world. That was one of the things that people were demanding. Uh, and and, and I, I got thinking that you can interpret that in many ways. Uh, you can interpret that literally. You're not being taught how to draw up contracts and, and how to manage a, a checkbook or a budget or... Uh, uh, or you can imagine, uh, as Peggy was saying, that that, that basically uh, you can bring in aspects of the larger social political systems you're working on to be able to reimagine practice itself. Uh, and uh, and I do think that um, uh, uh, that's why I put often these things. I I, I do think that there's um, uh, outcomes. And for example, there's a, a collaborative uh, out of Spain called La Col. Uh, that they've been working on, and their architecture is very uh, is cooperative, is collective. They have some of the ethos of the things that we're talking about, and it's uh, really you know some of their their uh, ideas are are very much similar to what is being talked about here. Some practices outside of the mainstream of of that uh, professional context, uh, and the architecture is beginning to take on some interesting kind of, for example, personally, I see a material and spatial, even formal outcomes out, out of this. So the question of how we think about uh, uh, what's real world and what isn't, and how we how we uh, work around that, I, I think it's an interesting point. That I, I and to go back to the generational thing, I do think that uh, maybe uh, people coming out of school now are beginning uh, now that autonomy has maybe begun to take a, a little bit of a backseat. Uh, uh, those ideas that architecture can only be about architecture itself. Uh, and by embracing um, and uh, what I what I would consider a, a, the critical project and of of the messiness of all these things, maybe are going to land in another place. It's well put, and it it reminds me of this um, that very old definition of theory. You know, eth ethical reflections on the conditions for practice, right? What's possible in practice. Um, uh, returning to this notion of the the narrative or the idea of the profession, right? Architecture as a profession being a part of this kind of the construction of the narrative that's problematic here. Um, it reminded me of um, a person that I studied with in grad school who I took professional practice with, uh, Bob Gutman, sociologist of, of architectural practice. I remember day one, you know, sitting there in, in graduate school, Bob Gutman asking, you know, a, a kind of rapt audience of eager, you know, architects in waiting, you know, 
to what extent do you think architecture is a profession? And you just put on the chalkboard here are the criteria by which we define a profession. Um, an advanced degree of some kind that was certainly appropriate, um, specialized literature, body of knowledge that's discrete, uh, journals, etc. cetera, um, licensure by the state, some kind of regulatory board. So we're going tick, tick, tick. We're, we're... And then he went to the big one, which was monopoly control over a sphere of action and defended by the state. You know, he's thinking of surgery or, you know, kind of landing an aircraft. Um, and at that point, we kind of looked around and said, well, maybe not. And then he continued down the list, which included the delegation of authority and responsibility to sub-disciplines like paralegals or nursing or pharmacy. And he, and he eventually just began to demolish by the 12th point, the notion that architecture could in any way be considered a profession in that sense. And his closing argument was that in the year prior, he had done the math and that the American Institute of Architects had uh, ranked uh, 49th in professional associations in terms of money raised to lobby Congress just after the American Dog Groomers Association. And I, Gutman, of course, was a lovely man. He meant no disparagement against dog grooming as a profession. But I think he was getting at something maybe as a kind of allied activity here, which is to kind of to begin to chip away at that mythology, that notion of a, it being a profession, right? Because I think we've all seen that uh, one aspect of that, you know, kind of you know, kind of sense of a, a landed gentry being only people available to this field. It, what, what I was struck by was the number of people both in grad school and afterwards who were able to sustain, you know, their life as an architect or launch their own practices by virtue of um, having had a, you know, a parent or a grandparent or great grandparent in the field. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, nepotism, you know, we've had a recent conversation, of course, about nepotism in Hollywood and cultural production there. Does nepotism play a role? Does generational wealth play a role in all this? Of course, we're talking about class distinctions. And I wonder if that's relevant here in trying to both democratize, but render more egalitarian uh, the work of architects. There's so much that you've said there that that is worth commenting on you. Know, but but I want to start with the fact that we miss Bob Gutman at this particular moment, desperately. Man, um, yeah, he he was he was he was the guy. Um, but um, I want to I want to talk about two aspects of of professionalization and and one one is um, the kind of elitism that comes with that and on and on the left one critiques that that elitism that comes with professionalism um, that is problematic but on the right it's also criticized because it's anti free market it, it is a form of collusion so. Um, both of both of those interpretations um, <laughs> put pressure on the legitimacy of, of professionalism. But but the second part for me is that one way or the other, a professional is a boundary that says these kinds of people are in and these kinds of people are out. And the people who are in have the professional training and have the 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 you know long um, education and the particular all that stuff. And then other people are out. You know, it's like we we're not going to get landscape architects to do architecture. We're not going to get plumbers to do architecture. Boom, boom, boom. Um, and that that gatekeeping um, is hugely problematic. You know, particularly in this period where um, the kinds of shared knowledge that we want to have, whether that has to do with material production or whether it has to do with new forms of construction or whether it has to do with um, 
you know, working with with ecologists who have information totally important to us, that boundary keeping just doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, so, Charles, I want to respond a little bit to the question around nepotism because it's interesting, right? I I doubt that Vulture is going to do a, a spread on Nepo babies uh, of architecture. Uh, and, uh, and and I got to tell you, for me, when I read that kind of, when I hear the discourse and, and I've heard uh, directors and actors talk about the that, <clears throat> what to me stands out more than the, the specifics of who's related to who, et cetera, is this larger notion that in our culture right now is harder to... Um, to go up in 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 life that that is harder to move from the place uh, culturally economically that you were born and move from there uh, and i and i think that that is a problem i remember for example at the center for architecture now maybe close to 10 years ago going to an event we're talking about public space with a lot of people from the pratt center and from community design centers and that kind of thing and one of the speakers um Ask the crowd uh, uh, who had come from a working class background or below, uh, and who had a, a master's of architecture. For, uh, I think she she I forgot if she specified Ivy League or not. And you had a lot of people over the age of uh, the time 50, 60, that did raise their hand, and a lot of uh, and I was one of the few people of maybe the generation behind that uh, that that did. Uh, and I and I think that more than the the nepotism question, I do think that right now one of the, and and it also explains both the movement to labor, etc. Is the idea of uh, that not a lot of us are not going to have uh, careers that where we're going to be making the the huge dollars? Is that that kind of thing seems uh, out of reach? And and so. I think the Nepo Baby uh, uh, discourse is just kind of bringing to light uh, larger fears uh, uh, about generation uh, generational inequalities. That's helpful, and it's certainly the case, setting aside nepotism specifically, that you know class mobility is one of the things that there's both you know less and less evidence for, but also increasingly anxiety about. You know, I think the combination of increased student loan indebtedness. I can tell you on, on our campus. You know, our school is producing the future professionals that have the the largest debt to future earnings ratio on campus, and this is a campus that includes divinity and a range of other, you know, kind of humanist disciplines. Um, so, in, in that context of you know, kind of upward mobility, and the, the, I want to want to talk a little bit about the national versus international. We've been focusing primarily about the United States. The architectural lobby was was founded. Um, in many ways, in the context of the United States, to what extent is this um, something that's gaining traction internationally? And then the flip side, are there other cultures? Killing you mentioned Spain. You know, I know, um, I know, Peggy, that you've been doing some work looking at China. Are there other cultures that have other models of cooperation or or different forms of organization for architectural services that might be uh, exemplary? Sweden. Um... Sweden is, is interesting. Um, the Swedish Association of Architects. Um, one uh, within Sweden, uh, you you don't have to have a license. Uh, anyone can call themselves an architect. A plumber can call themselves an architect. Um, and they've done research and found that um, that fact does not in any way limit the remuneration. That in fact, Swedish architects are paid more than than their European counterparts. So there's no relationship between um, between 
licensure and and um, income. Um, but their association is also um, a union, um, and it's a union of employees. Um, and so firm owners are part of an of a of another union, um, but it's not part of the Swedish Association of Architects. So the union aspect of it is different. The employee aspect of it of it is different. Um, so those are those are positive models and just to kind of continue about the advantages of that system uh because the the way that the public can know that the person they're hiring isn't a plumber uh they go into what is your educational background and it means that uh sweden puts much more money into architectural education because that is how they uh, guarantee the particular things that that kind of education offers to the to the public. Yeah, and uh, and uh, uh, other places. I mean, um, what I've been focusing more is kind of the the the, the places where I'm seeing alternative practices models uh, develop. Uh, at various point, uh, points, architectural lobby has tried to 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 map that, and uh, it's clear that Latin America, Spain, the UK has assembled. In Southeast Asia, there there are practices that are uh, developing to really meet the the challenges that traditional practice cannot. Um, uh, but again, I think it goes back to the point that we keep hitting that there are is uh, larger systematic reasons why you, you, in the U.S. this kind of uh, work is harder. Uh, so it's good both to understand what's happening outside of it, and especially, I mean, I think for. All of us are educators. We know that we have increasingly international students, and it's important for us to know what the practice is. And quite honestly, uh, I've, I've been wondering what we can learn from our international students when it comes to practice models. What we can learn from uh, from different ways of uh, yeah of of seeing things, as well as uh, I, I wonder if there's room for that even in pro-prac classes, right? So now it's not just from the US perspective, but rather from a global perspective, what does it mean to practice? <laughs> and learning and taking some of the, the good things that we see in other places and applying it to our own f uh, uh, fields and locales. I've done work on different countries, architectural professional associations. Um, and Charles, I think you were referring to that, um, but um, I went into that thinking that there might be things that we could learn from other countries that would make those professional organizations more powerful, things that the AIA could learn, um, you know, ab about membership, about, you know, dues, about its relationship to um, accreditation, you know, all, all of those different things. Um, and um, what I learned basically is confirming, I think what Killian is saying is that all those professional associations are so embedded in that nation's economic system and cultural hegemony that it's pretty tough to import some ideas about how the profession discipline is organized there into ours. It's just so particular around those national things. Um, and so one, you know, so I guess the message isn't just the difficulty of importing those things, but the kind of pathetic fact that all those different countries in the end have different definitions of architecture. And, and the sad part is that we, as a, as a general discipline that I think has um, general social aims, regardless of what country we're in, um, that we can't have a conversation about the role that architecture can play um, in, or certainly 
different national crises, but certainly international and global crises this day. Um, it's kind of amazing. So Peggy, you were um, one of the founding members of the architectural lobby, and I want to just from that you know recent history point of view, I know I know that the the movement has moved on and uh, has you know other other leadership at this point. But I, I wonder to what extent we can return to the origin moment. Um, you know, your work in in print for some time had been focused on questions of uh, subject formation, questions of economy, and, and questions of labor. But when when did this notion crystallize for you? Uh, where does that come from in kind of the origin story for the architectural lobby as an institution? Um, I, th I think there were a number of aha moments, and certainly one um, we've already referred to, which is uh, the work of Who Builds Your Architecture and um, and the recognition that architects were not willing to talk about this, which I thought was unbelievable. And again, in the comparison to artists who were organizing to refuse to have their art put into um, the new Guggenheim, you know, the, the artists <laughs> seemed to be able to organize to protest. And why couldn't why couldn't architects? Um, but but along with that, the kind of realization that what was being protested uh, for those um, construction labors was no control over their time, no no ability to live um, in anything other than group living, um, you know, bad pay. And it's like, oh, that sounds kind of like what happens to our recent graduates who are, you know, six people in an apartment in New York City and and no control over their hours. So that that was was a big aha moment. But another one was reading um, Ed Ford's um, Details of Modern Architecture. And in the introduction, he says one of the things that distinguishes the 19th century um, architectural practice from 20th century is that in the 19th century, if you were had social concerns, you were interested in the, in the, the worker, the builder, the maker. In the 20th century, you were concerned about the, about the user and the owner. Um, and it's, it's like, wow, um, you know, how how did that division happen? And why can't we in the 21st century consider that both of those matter? Um, you know, and then I'll just say a third was was uh, in the halls of the Yale um, Law School. I don't know why there was um, an architecture meeting there, but in the hall was a sign saying top 10 family friendly law firms um and i it was like why would you never see this in an architecture school why would you never see this in an architecture school it really it really set me off um so anyway those those are those are <laughs> things that kind of came together around the same time and who else should we credit um, in that uh, in that coming together? This was not a this was not a this was not a solo this was not a a single hero operation, right? This was not a solo project of your own. Absolutely not at all. And just to say, you know, when if we're talking about you know the, those things that set me off um, within the lobby, I I have to say, Killian is you know fairly important. Um, because uh, when we were trying to think of activities that or protests that the lobby might perform, uh, we went to the the Chicago AIA National Convention and and performed. But 
and you know we're almost arrested and there are things but there i mean just absolutely the point you're making is that there's everybody i can just you know say the people who who were willing to make the first website you know the people who pointed out that when we go to venice to do a protest that we need to have a clear manifesto and and th those people in venice you know did the manifesto and there was somebody who said oh you have to have um somebody there with a the camera it's like well, this is how you how you think about it you know um besides getting us a website we needed to develop a website you know it, i i just can't emphasize enough that every single volunteer at all stages brings something to it um the 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 you know it was hugely important that Kiefer Dunn who had union experience really knew how to uh, think about organization um, in a much more radical way than I think many of us had. Hugely important. Uh, Dester Walcott, who who also uh, was, um, you know, the kind of main uh, director of of the organization. His his ability to set conversations that would allow individual voices to be heard while also directing us in places. Um, yeah, I, I can go on and on. It just It's an important point that you made. <laughs> and Killian, uh, as you think about the lobby going forward, um, what are your aspirations, you know, medium term over the next several years? What what, what should we, we be looking for with respect to its programming, its, its project ongoing? Uh, I wanted to completely first agree with Peggy that it's just amazing and how <clears throat> Uh, one of the things that I'm happiest about the lobby is that it's now self-regenerational uh, in that uh, it, it just, uh, we, the leadership changes, the people change, the ethos doesn't. Uh, and it's great because it means that you can sometimes step out when necessary, come back. It's like you never left, even if you might not know anyone in that room. Uh, is is uh, the the group of people, and of course Peggy started it. Uh, I think I was. Uh, I think I might be one of the oldest continuous members. There, there might be someone else. Uh, <clears throat> but altogether, something was created. Something has continued, and 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 I really appreciate that. I think the future lies in that. It lies in in thinking. I think that. Uh, it's gonna be uh, this kind of movement, uh, movement-driven almost practice, and I, and I'm gonna call this a practice. I, to me, the architecture lobby is a practice. It's not an individual practice; it's a collective practice, like we're saying, and it's developing itself. It's still finding its language. It's finding its modalities. Uh, but uh, but for what, what for me is important is how it's be go going to number one begin to network with other similar groups that are emerging uh, uh, in in and there are now at least three or four uh, that are uh, beginning around other issues around similar issues with overlaps. Uh, so there there's now an interesting condition that the lobby at one point might have been one of the very few groups uh, there was who built your architecture but it had a different model now this kind of democratically driven chapter based uh, uh, project is now becoming a thing that we can see in, a, in more than one place uh, so number one is how do those things network and how these be, can become maybe new models uh, uh, again of practice for the US and I do think that the future of the lobby is going to be the future of the architectural profession. I mean, it's going to be driven by it. Uh, and some of the things that I wonder there is uh, what's going to happen to the small practice. 
the media uh, 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 or and the medium practice. Those two things, I think, are almost uh, endangered species. Uh, uh, and and what then is going to happen to the large practice, right? Uh, I think the architecture lobby has uh, answers for those. I think for the small to medium, there are ideas around uh, how to truly uh, create cooperative models, uh, uh, models that are going to allow maybe uh, work and expertise and uh, ideas and projects to flow back and forth. Uh, and that are and that might actually really strengthen. And we're seeing uh, some of the 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 so yeah, already some practitioners beginning to work that way here in the U.S. Uh, we work closely with Peggy, for example, with UXO Architects, a group that is living by that ethos. And for the big ones, then how do they respond to the potentially uh, broader movements around labor? Uh, because at that level, it's, it's even clearer that that there's larger infrastructures and uh, and employees. And how they respond to that. So I, I do. Uh, so my question moving forward is: What is what is where is architecture going? What are is different practice models going to be? Are there going to be more nonprofit? More uh, what what are what are we going to do to meet the challenges that we face? And what you were saying, Charles, the level uh, the 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 many crises that we have we have been living under, and that we probably will continue. I don't think there's any sign that this is going to end anytime soon. Uh, and maybe it, maybe it has always been around us, right? And, and now it's just becoming clear that the climate crisis is hitting us in the face. The the the, the racial reckoning that we've been living through the last few years is making things that have always been there just more visible. Um, so that's what I I'm hoping that the the lobby is both gonna be part of a broader network of of groups that are gonna be creating solidarities and movements. Uh, and and begin to think of themselves as a, a kind of practice and and uh, and then the the way that architecture as a field shapes itself, especially for me the U.S. because it's just what I know most, but I'm sure that as because we're international that might shift as well. Uh, but uh, as that goes, I, I feel like the lobby is going to be able to respond to those specific uh, uh, movements as well as their effects in specific regions around the country. For our listeners that want to get involved, uh, architecture-lobby.org. Uh, Killian, Riano, Peggy Deemer, thanks so very much. Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you, Charles. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.